Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Folly or Different. And this is a very different podcast. We aspire to have real conversations that celebrate the people, ideas, and companies that stand out. Conversations that we hope inspire, educate, and entertain you. This is the first in a special two-part series, Real Different Conversations about two of the most legendary Category King companies in the world right now, Netflix and Amazon. On our next episode, you'll hear a conversation with the outstanding John Rossman, and he's the author of a brand new book, bestseller called Think Like Amazon. And on today's episode, legendary entrepreneur Mark Randolph. He's the founding CEO of Netflix, and he's got a kick-ass bestseller out, and I love the title of his book. It's called That Will Never Work, The Birth of Netflix and the Amazing Life of an Idea. And Mark and I have a fun, insightful conversation about what it really takes to start a world-changing category king company, how Netflix came so close to failing, and many life and business lessons that Mark has gleaned over his incredible career. This is a guy who's created well in excess of $125 billion, with a B, in value. And he's the rare entrepreneur that's had incredible success in both business-to-consumer and business-to-business. Recently, a company that he co-founded and was on the board of called Looker was purchased by Google for in excess of $2 billion. And on this episode, you'll also love the story, love it, about how Netflix almost sold to Blockbuster and instead drove them out of business. So uh, listen, especially for that. And, um, you know, look, I know I say it a bunch, but this is another legendary example of the power of a real dialogue podcast. The value of a conversation like the one you are about to hear with Mark is, is a stunner. All right, our friends at Splunk are the category queens and kings of big data. They want to help you bring data to everything, every question, every decision, and every action. Check out Splunk, S-P-L-U-N-K dot com slash D-D-E. That's Splunk.com slash D, the number two, E, as in data to everything. And my friends at Oracle NetSuite want to help you turbocharge the growth of your business. Go to NetSuite.com slash different today. That's NetSuite.com slash different. And uh, speaking of places you might want to visit on the internet, Check out Lockhead.com, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com for the show notes from this episode. And while you're there, subscribe to our newsletter, The Difference. Now, hey-ho, let's go. But in a startup, that's not how it is everything's intermingled. You're rushing home to have dinner and then coming back to the office later. You're worrying about anxieties with, you know, you're not making any money. Um, and so you're, you're struggling with personal finance and it, which inflect, infects everything. You know, we, I'm not even sure I had it in the book, but you know, I was stealing furniture from the house to bring it in to furnish that first office. Um, everything is tied together. And so that, yeah. what I wanted to do is really create a very true portrait of a startup. And to do that, you've got to drag in the, uh, the family life. Well, yeah, like with your co-founders, right? What's up with their spouse or their kids or if something's going on in their life, good, bad, somewhere in between, 
That's part of the deal, right? And part of being, listen, now it's editorializing, but I think part of being successful is having balance in your life. And I'm, I preach about that culture is not what you say, it's what you do. So I wanted to show how we did it. How, you, how do you really have balance in your life? You know, and telling yeah. that whole story like I did in the book about the Tuesday date night, this religiously leaving the office at five o'clock p.m. You know, if there's a crisis, well, it better be resolved by five. And if you have to talk to me, it's on the way to the car. Um, I'm going. <laughs> yeah, I'm and going. I'm not going to be on my cell phone all dinner long either. Yeah, correct. And, and, you know, culture is what you do, not what you say. And I wanted to show that this balance thing, that's as important as uh, A-B testing or, uh, you know, debt versus equity. In fact, in fact, you know, I do a lot of startup mentoring. Um, in fact, that's mostly what I do now. And it's amazing that 75% of the mentoring you do is that. How do I get along with my co-founder? How do I deal with this? How do I fire this person? How do I keep my relationship together? How do I? So you realize that to have this pretend to be a book about how do you turn ideas into realities and not talk about that would be leaving out a huge part of what it's really like. Yeah, it's so interesting because so many people don't talk about that. And there's a founder uh, I'm working with right now, uh, you know, a team company, and one of the co-founders, um, you know, he, and, he and his wife are on the rocks and they may split up, they may not. And so all of a sudden I'm Dr. Phil. <laughs> yeah, listen, you know, in, in more uh, unguarded moments, I do call being a mentor, being a marriage counselor. Yeah. And I've heard you, um, I've heard you also talk about marriage and the importance of your spouse. Why do you think that's an important thing to, um, for business people to be talking about? Well, you know, I, I, I don't care what they talk about, but for me, it's important. Um, I just believe, I mean, again, it's what culture is what you do. And I've, I've believed balance is critical for me. I'm not a whole person if I'm working all the time. I, I need to have those relationships with people, with, you know, with my wife, with my best friend, but also my other best friends. I need to, you know, I need to get out and go surfing. I need to get out and go mountain biking. What, what's the point otherwise? Um, so that's why I talk so much about it. Listen, you know, it's not one size fits all and to each their own. Uh, my point is that a lot of people do want those things and feel like they can't or feel like they don't know how. And that's really what we're trying to show here. I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, we had uh, Professor Scott Galloway on the podcast a while ago and his new book um, about happiness came out and he made this comment that was so obvious, but, you know, like a lot of obvious comments can be pretty profound. And he said, the spouse decision is the biggest decision we make because the upside is so great and the downside is so great. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely true. You know, I I just didn't want to be one of those entrepreneurs who is on their sixth company and their sixth wife too. Yeah, we've all seen it, right? And it, it, it starts to get like, aren't, like, don't you have this moment? I hate to be so judgmental, but you kind of go, dude, like, have you looked at what you're doing? Like, what are you doing here, man? Your life is a disaster. But they almost take it as a point of pride sometimes. Look how hard I work. Look how I'm willing to ignore everything else in my life to make my business a success. But I agree. It's, I'm kind of going, ah, I don't get it. I'm not sure. Because then, of course, you know there's going to be that moment in five or six years when they get to some plateau or some 
peak and go, okay, now what? Or is that all there is? Or whatever you say when you get to that point. Well, so maybe let's touch on this a little bit. You know, there's been this huge hustle movement and all these, I call them hustle porn stars who write all these books that tell you you should hustle and podcasts and all this, you know, these types of characters. Uh, Grant Cardone said nobody ever died of hard work. And it's like, oh yeah, they have a word for it in Japan, you dumb fuck, right? And so I, I you know, so I'm in the fuck hustle. Heart attack. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Heart attack. That's what they call it. So I'm in the fuck hustle movement, not the hustle movement. <laughs> and so to that end, you know, you talk about balance, you talk about surfing, you talk about your wife, your friends, et cetera. You and your co-founders and the founding team, there's no question about it. You guys have created one of the greatest categories and category dominating and defining companies in history. It is an absolutely extraordinary thing that the most powerful company in Hollywood is in Silicon Valley in Los Gatos, California. <laughs> and, and you started off with a Patsy Cline CD. And so uh, if I could go back to the fuck hustle idea, you know, you created one of the greatest companies in history. You just had this looker outcome. You've you know, done all this great stuff. And yet you're telling people have a balanced life focused on your wife. Well, it's, it's because I never set out to create a category. That wasn't like the goal. I mean, the goal was I loved the people I worked with. I loved coming in and sitting around the table with them and solving all these really hard and interesting and fun problems. The fact that it turned into this is just this very lucky and fortunate outcome. But I never said if I can't do that, I'm unsuccessful or something like that. Um, and the same with Looker. You know, you mentioned it quickly, you know, when Lloyd and I sat down to start that, it was supposed to be a lifestyle business. And we wanted a place we liked coming to work and something fun to do. But, you know, these companies sometimes well, go in directions you never expect, you know? It was Google who purchased the company. Am I remembering that right? Google's, Google's correct for a lot of money. Two and a half bills, somewhere around there. $2.6 billion. Yeah, don't forget yeah. that extra $100 million. <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, $100 million here, $100 million there. Pretty soon, you're talking real money. This starts to add up. Yeah. And so the other thing that I find fascinating about you, Mark, is you are a rare breed in our world, which is somebody who's had giant success in B2B and B2C at like very, very high levels. Well, it's because I... <laughs> that's actually pretty funny because Looker wasn't supposed to be B2B the way it is. It was supposed to be more B2C in a way. It was supposed to be one of those simple self-serve websites where you come on and they have the three different, you know, $29.95 a month, $49.90, pick, you know, best offer. Um, because we thought we could do, that was a great business that we could run simply. But like I said, businesses are like kids in a way and that they, they grow up in a way you never quite expect. And you just got to follow along and see where it goes. But Looker is a cool one to talk about from that perspective because that's what's so fun is I knew nothing about business to business. I knew nothing about SaaS. Um, I knew nothing about how the care and maintenance of people who carry briefcases and expensive suits. Um, and we had to figure all these things out. And God, that's what makes this so fun. And, uh, and so if I was maybe a younger entrepreneur and I was sort of thinking, man, over a course of a 30 or 40 year career, if I'm lucky, I'd like to be able to play in B2C because there's some sexiness about that. And for a lot of people, that's the shiny object, which I told, you know, completely get. Um, but the reality is, you know, if you listen to guys like Jim Getz at Sequoia and many others, they tell you that the, 
the hit rates, the capital efficiency, the opportunities for new innovation, new categories, new products uh, are actually greater. And the ultimate wealth creation is greater in B2B. And so if, if I was somebody who was thinking over a long career, maybe I'd want to play a little bit in both. Um, how would you sort of uh, set my thinking around the differences between the two? Well, it's a way easier to explain B2C to your mom. Um, and there's a nice benefit in that. I mean, and, and you said before, even before Netflix, uh, the, the one just prior, uh, Integrity QA, that was B2B. Um, Borland, in some ways, was a combination of the two. Uh, then before that, it was all B2C stuff. It was all magazines and mail order companies. Um, I... I think B2C is so much more interesting because the empathy is so much more, so much easier. You're essentially selling to yourself. You're, you're, uh, you know, selling over the web is this remote empathy. You have to guess how someone is perceiving and reacting to what you're putting out there. And it's hard to go, how would a corporation feel about this? much easier to imagine how would a person feel about this, especially if you pick a category where you actually have some relationship to it. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, you talked about surfing. It's the Jack O'Neill um, tag on all the wetsuits with this, you know, classic photo with the eye patch. And then underneath it, it says, I was just a surfer who wanted to surf longer. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. You know, uh, it, it, it's a, it's, it is a big piece of it. I, um, I mean, Reed and I didn't have any experience in the video industry, but listen, we'd been renting videos just like everybody else. So we knew firsthand the frustrations. Uh, and we just built as this, this is the most trite comment. In the, we just built a company that we might like to be customers of. <laughs> well, does it have to be that much more complicated? No, it doesn't. It's, it, it's certainly a, it's certainly a good model if you pick the right category. And I remember when you guys were just launching, um, uh, what year did Netflix launch? Remind me the year. 1998, April 14th. Yeah, I thought it was that early. And the reason is, I can remember, it's funny, you remember things for random reasons. I can remember being at a foundation capital schmooze and booze, and I'm almost positive it was 2000. And uh, that's the one and only time I met Reed. And I remember thinking, what's this because of course I knew Pure Atria, right? Yeah. What's this Pure Atria guy doing, trying to <laughs> rent DVDs over the, you know, uh, through the mail? And, yeah. I, and, and I thought it was interesting. I didn't dismiss it out of hand, but I thought, wow, what a it, like, what a sort of a flip that must be. Um, so maybe take me back to those days in the Patsy Cline CD and and sort of bring that to life for me a little, if you could, Mark. Well, you know, just uh, and I certainly shall. But the, just to quickly comment on that and the read and what he's doing in Foundation Capital and all that stuff, it, that in many ways is what made the relationship between Reed and I so strong. Is that we were this yin and yang. We were we came from different worlds, worlds, um, and but we're able to mesh together so seamlessly, but saw the world totally differently because he was not. Uh, he'd probably use the word maybe contaminated by um, 
thinking about how the individual consumer was going to react. He was thinking about scale and efficiency. And I was not um, blinded by what was possible and what was cost efficient. I was just going, no, this is kind of what I can sense. This is what people are going to want. And then when you mesh those two in a, uh, in a respectful way, you end up with something great. But, um, this, you know, that whole thing started, uh, I was reluctantly dragged into that, not just B2B, but geek-to-geek marketing, which is kind of the business that Reed was in. You know, I had been working for a, a, a scanner company called Visioneer, which was a consumer uh, product, and I really understood it, and I knew why it was being used and how, and I, but I hated it. That was my the only job where my wife told me that she could tell I didn't want to go to work every morning. Um, and so when um, I left that company, I overreacted and went to work with two best friends because I go, I don't care what we're doing, but at least I'll be with people I really like and respect. Um, and that was the company called Integrity QA, which was, was doing quality assurance software. And that was already over my head, marketing to QA people. But then when we got acquired by Reed's company, which did leaked memory leak detection and case management, I was going, how did I end up here? How dorky could this get? <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm getting, I'm really getting dragged in. And I was supposed to be the head of marketing for Puratria. I was not was supposed to be. I was the head of marketing for Puratria. And so that was a hard uphill learning. But um, anyway, it's a long story of, of getting to the fact that luckily, Pure Atria in turn got acquired by Rational, which was even geekier than Pure Atria was, and blissfully uh, they didn't want me. I was. Isn't it fun geeky. when you get acquired and it's a good outcome, and they happily fire you and give you a Scooby snack on the way out the door? Oh yeah, they give you a big box of them. It's the uh, it is the best deal in the world. Uh, and Reed also was being made redundant. I'm not sure he was as happy about it as I was. Um, but both of us were these unwant the misfit toys for, you know, six months while the Puratria deal and rational deal closed. But anyway, it, Reed was going, you know, he was a little burned out by it. And he said, I'm going to finally pursue this education thing. I'm going to change the world. Um, and so he was going to go back and get his, I think, master's, maybe doctorate in education. So he'd have some credibility when, when he didn't have to change the world of education. And, but I was ready for a startup number six. Um, and I knew exactly what I wanted it to be, um, because of all my direct marketing background, my first 20 years in business was all direct marketing related stuff. When I saw the internet coming, I was going, oh my God, this is direct marketing on steroids and e-commerce. Oh my God, this is even better. So all I knew was I wanted to sell something on the internet for my next startup. Uh, and so Reed was kind of intrigued. And he goes, I'll be your angel investor. Um, I'll put up the money. Uh, you can start and run your company. I'll come to board meetings. We can chit chat. We'll both get what we want. Um, and, and of course, at this time, Amazon's launched and showing real momentum, right? So absolutely. there's a lot of heat. I mean, you were one of thousands of companies that had some e-commerce component. I mean, this was the time, right? This was the go-go days. Yeah, I think this is just, we're still a little early for it to be go-go days yet. Oops, sorry. <laughs> there we go. Is it? 
<laughs> is that Hollywood calling? They want their category <laughs> back. <laughs> that, was, that was Reed. Going, hey, what are you talking about? No. Um, uh, anyway. Uh, oh yeah. I'm, I'm, now, I'm, now I'm totally flustered. <laughs> it's uh, okay. This is an okay place to be flustered. I am all the time. I'm, I'm actually okay. Uh, yeah. That was, so so the, the whole idea was what do we do? What category? Oh, I was saying it's not go-go times, really. It was just starting. Yes, Amazon was the pioneer. You know, they were just selling books then. Um, and a few people were sniffing around, but it was hard. I mean, there was you couldn't just download Square, you know, log onto Squarespace and boom. Or and build Netflix. Shop, or <laughs> Shopify. You know, if you wanted to do e-commerce, you had to build an e-commerce website. And, you know, you wanted... Uh, to be able to serve pages, you had to build the servers. You had to do everything yourself. It was hard. So anyway, we're going, what category is it? And uh, I brainstormed all kinds of ridiculous ideas. Um, like, you know, as they say in the book, like the custom dog food and uh, personalized shampoo. Uh, I wanted to do uh, vitamins, uh, baseball bats. I had all these Interesting ideas that I thought would lend themselves to deep personalization on the internet. Um, and then one of the other crazy ideas was video rental, because we obviously were looking at Amazon. And then we were going, what are the other big categories like that? And video was an obvious, music was one, but video was one. And we go, I'm not sure we want to sell videos because that's so commodified, commoditized. And eventually Amazon's going to do that one too, and everyone's going to do it. But this video rental category, that's huge. It's like $8 billion. Um, can we do something there? And I spent a bunch of time researching that. I mean, I really built out the whole model, but it was all around VHS, that big, heavy cassettes. And it didn't take long to research that and figure out it's not going to work. And we have shelved that one too, put it in the same bin, the dog food and the shampoo was in. And what really was the lucky break was that we heard about um, the DVD. And the lucky break was one piece hearing about the DVD, but the other lucky break was the fact that we had already spent all this time working out what video rental by mail might, might look like and realizing it wasn't going to work. And then all of a sudden, it's like, you know, sometimes you're cleaning up and you find the puzzle piece underneath the couch and you go, oh, that's it. It fits exactly in that little spot. Um, and so the, the, DVD. Combination, the combination of those two, the DVD was the key that unlocked this old idea we'd already worked on. And what year, remind me, did the DVD sort of begin to show signs of breaking into the mainstream? 1999, 2000. So you guys are concocting this and then all of a sudden it shows up and now the dots really connect. Yeah. And of course, when it shows up, it was in test market. So yeah. it showed up as an idea, but you know, any success is a long string of lucky breaks. And one of them was that DVD a actually worked and B that it didn't follow the trajectory of like the laser disc or something where it gets to a six or 7% household penetration and plateaus. Instead, it was much more like the um, VCR, which after the initial uh, beta VHS beta um, eventually got into like 98 or something percent of the homes. And but, that so was the, the, one of the fascinating things I find about what you folks did was 
you had two massive innovations that really allowed you to redesign the whole space, the whole category. You know, one is um, this distribution that you could you could now mail somebody this thing, and the second one, of course, is uh, you folks were one of the very early pioneers in subscription. So you had massive business model innovation that was materially different, and over time. Uh, much more attractive to consumers than the than the traditional model of I go and I pay for a rental and and I pay late fees and all the bullshit, right? So, massive business model innovation around subscription and then the distribution through the mail. And so, I'd love for you to sort of light up your thinking at the time and how all that shit was coming together and how you guys were putting it together. Well, there's a big elements of desperation in all this. That um, you know the. One of the other things I wanted to show in this book is that Netflix did not spring forth fully formed as this 150 million household company that we struggled for a long time. And it's called That Will Never Work for a Reason. It's because everyone that we pitched the DVD by mail business to told us that'll never work, including my wife. But... um, The thing is, they were right, because that original idea we launched on April 14th, 1998, was terrible. It had due dates. It had late fees. It took two or three days or four or five days to get the disc to somebody. Uh, They had to return it in seven days. I mean, it was bad. But we had to figure out, was there a way to make this work? And that took us a year and a half. So, if you're looking back from the perspective of 21 years after that moment, yeah, the, the gap between launch and the no due dates, no late fees just seems like a little blip. But if you look at it from zero and it's a year and a half out before you finally think about maybe we should try a no due dates, no late fees subscriptions with a Q model, my gosh, it is so far up and over the hill and far away that you, you can't even envision that. And one of the things I love that you uh, like to talk about is uh, fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Oh, and, absolutely. And how Netflix, you know, didn't start this way, right? You, you guys kept banging on something, at least my interpretation. You kept banging away and you discovered this and you got a little lucky over here and you innovated there and you were smart enough to put things together. Um, but this mantra of fall in love with the problem, how did that help you particularly in the formative years? Well, because too many people take it, have an idea in search of a problem. And that ends up being so futile. And uh, had we at day one said, here's our idea, video rental by mail. Uh, We have all the DVDs. We ship them out to you. You have a seven-day rental period. and And we could have then spent six months trying to figure out who might want that? Or I don't even know how you go, but I don't think that way. Instead, you go, no, the problem is that Blockbuster sucks. The problem is when you walk into a store, you can't find what you want. The problem is that even though they talk about immediacy, it's still not immediate. You still have to get in your car. You have to drive. You got to park. You got to go into this place where you can't find stuff. That's the problem. So we were just trying everything we possibly could to approach that problem from different directions. And you also get the benefit of the faster you test things, the faster you learn. So even though each of these new ideas was bad, there were always little glimpses of learning in the ideas that gave you a new thing to try to solve the problem. And 
uh, you know, and that really is what the book is about. It's, it's, yeah, it's about the untold story of Netflix, but it's also about how all those little approaches, like when you, we just talked about, uh, all those little things added together are where allow you to turn an idea into a reality, not some formulaic thing you learn in business school. <laughs> not that I've been to business school. Not that I know what you learn in business school. Yeah, you and me both, brother. Um, now, you have a whole section in the book called Losing Faith in You, uh, the fall of 1998. So um, maybe bring this section of the book to life for me. I found it quite fascinating. Uh, yeah. It, it was one late afternoon or early evening, and I was sitting there in my office, you know, plugging away at stuff, and then the door opens and Reed pops his head in. And that was unusual as it was because he wasn't working for the company at the time. He was working over the hill. And, uh, but he pops his head in and goes, all right, we have to talk. And that's, that's never good news. So then Reed comes in and he's got his laptop with him and he flips it open and begins walking me through a PowerPoint. And I'm going, what, what is this? And at first it was, you know, here's all the good things you've done. And then he begins going into all the, um, areas where he was becoming concerned about my judgment. <laughs> I remember going, Reed, I am not going to sit here while you pitch me on why I suck. Um, <laughs> that, that dialogue I do remember. Um, and, uh, he goes, I mean, he was like taken aback because it was, that was, not, that really genuinely was not what he felt he was doing. And, he said, no, no, that's not what this is about at all. And I had thought perhaps as this was happening that he was getting ready to fire me. I mean, he had more stock than I did. I didn't know how that would happen. But what he was really getting at was that he was concerned that this was a more complicated problem than either of us had anticipated, that it was going to require a different level of execution and a much broader range of skill sets. And he was concerned about my idea, my ability to handle that. And then he said, we should run this company together. That he should come and join the company full time, but that he would come as CEO and I would be president. And it was a really sobering moment because Reed and I have always had from day one, this incredibly honest relationship with each other. There is never a sugarcoating of the truth. There's never a... Um, backing off from something difficult to say because you want to spare someone's feelings. And so I knew Reed wasn't, um, didn't have some ulterior motive. Um, he wasn't trying to get more power for himself or he genuinely believed this would be stronger with both of us and he was going to come in and help. Um, but it was hard because I had had this dream of starting and running this big successful company. And I kind of realized that what had happened over the last year or so was that it wasn't just my dream anymore, that the investors had all taken this up as their dream and the employees had taken it up as their dream. And that I kind of had to separate these dreams. Was it more important dream making it successful or was the more important dream being the big cheese? And uh, I'm not saying that's the kind of thing you just go, okay, 
But it's something that I thought about for a long time. And I sat in my office for several hours after Reed had left. And then I went home and my wife and I opened a bottle of wine and we sat out in our porch for a while. And I ultimately concluded that, you know, Reed was right, that it was hard to deny that this company wouldn't be way stronger with both of us running it. And if that required that I share this position with Reed, that I'd be willing to do that. Um, And so help me, Mark, with, you know, we all have egos and entrepreneurs are known for having big egos because, look, you you sort of have to have, you have to be a little arrogant to think that you can change the world and build a highly valuable company or you'll bring a new category of ideas and thinking to the world when you and I both know the world is not necessarily requesting that you do that, right? The world often says, go fuck yourself, right? So it takes gumption, it takes courage, it takes a lot of those things. Um, and so help me with kind of how you, how do you manage your ego with a splitting the job and B, you know, he took the CEO uh, title and you took the president title and, and that can be, titles can be a hard thing for people. Yeah, it was, a, it was a really good lesson actually. And it's one that I've certainly used a lot in the, in the 20 plus years since that, that happened, which is that you, you've got to be careful about titles because people do take them very, very seriously. But, you know, it's not like I have some trick to, oh, if you just press on your wrist really hard, it really helps your ego. Yeah, I, I, there's no, it, it just happens that way for me. I don't, I think it's because I never really got into it for that reason, that it was never for me about that. And so, yeah, you kind of get used to it. So that makes it a little hard to walk away from it. I genuinely, I mean, genuinely cared more about the people I was working with and the company being successful than I did about my, whether, what my particular role was. Yeah. And, you know, and people, everyone goes, God, you, are you bitter? And which is the even more hard to fathom emotion for me to think, which is how could I possibly be bitter about what, what happened even in the ensuing months after that? That was like the renaissance at Netflix. So many amazing things happened when Reed and I were running the company together. The whole no due dates, no late fees came from that. The whole Cinematch came from that. The whole dynamic website came from that. Um, A a whole relationship to the studios changed because of that. And and wow, even after I left, what Reed has done. You know, if I look back, I got to imagine that probably was the smartest thing the smartest CEO decision that I ever made at that company. Uh, you know, ble- bless you because I think, <laughs> no, but like, Thank you. this is something I think a lot of us get fucked up and look, I, it, what do you, to your point, what do you care about? Right. Most people would rather be right than successful. Most people will put their ego, their title, their stock position, whatever it is, the thing that they think is the most important thing ahead of the mission at hand, right? Of building a legendary company, of completely changing. You guys have now changed an entire, multiple industries, I would argue, right? I mean, you started off with the movie rental business, but I mean, everybody in Hollywood today is is trying to copy pretty much everything (laughs) that the, the company's doing today, right? And so I just, it strikes me and it comes across in the book too. It takes a big person to do the kinds of things that you did to, to empower the vision, empower the mission, as opposed to empower your own ego. 
Well, I guess all I can really say is thank you. (laughs) Because again, it's, businesses are reflections of who you are. And that's just, I guess, who I've always been. It's just never been about that for me. Um, And I think for a lot of people, you're right. It is. People's motivation, you know, know, I, I do a lot of, angel investing and I do a fair a lot of talking to companies about the potential of mentoring them and there's a lot of people who have these huge chips on their shoulders or these huge insecurities and I know that is going to drive them they're going to be it's a very powerful force um, I don't necessarily think they're healthy ones but it's very powerful and my motivations have always been much more intellectual curiosity driven than they have been about some Freudian um, compulsion to be successful. Yeah. Incredible. Now what, you know, I have an idea what this answer might be having read the book, but I want to hear it from you. You know, what are the biggest things you really want the world to understand about the founding of, uh, of, uh, of the company and why those learnings are, why you want those learnings to be in the world? Um, I've learned probably more in the 16 years since I left Netflix than I did at Netflix or certainly at the other five startups before Netflix, because each of those, it's really hard to separate out the lucky breaks from the skill. Um, and there's huge elements of survivor bias in this business. Everyone wants to hear, oh gosh, the guy who launched this successful company, what did he do? As if that individual path somehow guarantees it. And some people, this uh, for every one person, there's 99 or 9,900 who did the exact same thing and their company due to some weird fluke just cratered. Um, but after, when I've had this chance to work with literally dozens, you know, if not hundreds of early stage companies, you begin to see what the common denominators are. And what I really wanted in the book was to share with people all these little things that I learned about what are the common denominators of being able to take an idea and make it real. Now, I'm not saying to build a $150 million subscription. No, I don't know how to do that. That just happened. But I do know a lot about how to take an idea and make it real. And the other huge thing that I want to tell people is that, um, it's not just a business thing, that everyone has ideas, things they want to try. They're in a big company and they see a problem that their customer's having and they have an idea of how to fix it. Or they see an inefficiency in their own job and they want to fix it. Or they're young and they, they go, gosh, I wish I could have figured out how to afford an apartment in San Francisco. And they ha- I have an idea. What I've learned is that that path from that idea in your head to becoming something real is very, very navigable and that those steps are very concrete and very possible and that too many people are blocked and they're blocked by everyone who tells them that'll never work or they're blocked by the voice in their own head that says that'll never work. And I really believe that all these things that I've uh, picked up in my 40 years as an entrepreneur can help someone unblock that idea. Yeah, you've said that you don't think you're that special. (laughs) No, well, I mean... I'm, I know I'm, there's some, there are some things I'm very good at, so I don't deny that. I have an intuitive sense for, tri, for startup triage. I can kind of tell what 
of all the hundred things that are broken and on fire, I kind of have a sense of what the one or two things are that if I fix those one or two, the rest will fall into place. And then I have this kind of OCD ability to focus on them at the expense of everything else burning. And that's, that's a hard skill to develop and train. And I'm just lucky I stumbled into startups because that skill is not that valuable in many other places. But you can scale. I mean, you can. Someone who comes and goes, Mark, I just graduated from a liberal undergraduate with a liberal arts degree. How do I start a company that's going to make a new next generation CAT scan machine? No. My advice is let's talk about what your abilities are able to do. So, and, and, you know, Silicon Valley in, in many ways is the major leagues. The people who come here to start companies are the kind of the very best at what they do. But that you don't need to play at that level to have the incredible fulfillment that you get from starting something. Now, I also, um, I love the blockbuster story. Um, can you just maybe tell me a bit about that story? And I, I just, I love the, the, the fate of the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, it, it's kind of ironic because there's so many stories of um, be careful what you wish for in s- startups. And we'd been struggling, as I mentioned before, for a year and a half to figure out this business model to make DVD by real mail work. And we finally did this no due dates, no late fees. And it was an unbelievable success. It took off. Um, but it was complicated and confusing. No due dates, no late fees, a subscription and a queue. And so we gave everyone a month free uh, to try it. And again, two of my startups were magazines. So I knew a lot about subscription offers and I knew about negative option deals and all that stuff that we built into Netflix came from all my experience in the magazine business. But what that means is that when all of a sudden the orders begin flowing in, flooding in, you go, this is awesome. It's taken off. But then in the back of your mind, you're going, each one of these orders is costing me $50 up front. And I'm going to recover that over the next 18 months. We're going to go broke being successful. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, success is going to make us bankrupt. Exactly. And even worse, this was fall of 2000 when uh, the dot-com bubble, the last bits of air were streaming out of that bubble. Um, and so whereas a year prior you know, you could just go out into Highway 17 and flag down the big tanker truck full of money and they would just back up in your driveway <laughs> and dump piles and you got you bring everyone out with pitchforks and wheelbarrows and bring the money in. That was gone. I mean, now it was a desert. So we were screwed. And so uh, there's that term uh, people use in business calling pursue strategic alternatives, which is just the kind of the same one as like the, He's leaving to spend more time with his family. Um, but it means basically you're fucked. And pursue strategic alternatives means we got to find someone to buy us. Uh, and our strategic alternative was Blockbuster. But we were nothing to them because they were $6 billion in revenue and we were $6 million in revenue, barely. Um, and so they wouldn't even pay attention to us. And then about two months later, after we started pestering them, they finally agreed to a meeting. Um, and just luckily enough, when they called us, we were out at a corporate retreat at the Alisol Ranch outside of Santa Barbara. We were all out there in our flip-flops and T-shirts and shorts. And that's all we really brought. Um, and they go, we'd love to see you. We all got excited. Tomorrow uh, in Dallas. And we're up 
in the middle of nowhere. And so, of course, we did the prudent thing that companies that are in the hole do, which is they lease this corporate jet. And here's your, uh, your trivia. It was owned by Vanna White. Uh, which people of you and my generation, of course, know who Vanna White is, but she's incredible. I, I think her and Pat Sajak are still on TV. I think. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, or they're animatronics. I'm not sure whether they might be real. VR. Who knows what it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we flew to Blockbuster and on the way there, we are so excited because we go, this is such an obvious, obvious uh, merger. You know, they'll, they'll buy us, we'll blend the stores and the online model. They have 9,000 stores. Think of their promotion engine. This is so obviously a good idea. We made the whole pitch, of course, to them. And uh, um, John Antioco, who's the then CEO of Blockbuster, is kind of listening. And you can kind of see he's not quite getting it. And, and then I realized that actually he's struggling not to laugh which is never, never a good sign. Um, and of course, then the meeting goes downhill after that. And we ended up, we asked them for $50 million. They go, what should we pay for you? And then Reed says $50 million. And that's when they laughed out loud, um, which is another not good sign. Um, but the, the interesting thing about that is we had thought for this one shining moment that Blockbuster would be the, the deus ex machina that reached down from the heavens and saved us. Exactly. Da, 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 da. Um, and at, or at the very best, uh, at least our problems would now be their problems. But instead, they laughed. And it made us realize that there was no way out. There was no way around. That, as my dad used to always say, sometimes the only way out is through. And it was a certain resolve from that point forward. Or as I, I said on the plane on the way home, I go, okay, guys, now we got to kick their ass. I love, I love that story so much, Mark. <laughs> God bless you. It's so freaking awesome. And, you know, I think the other thing that gets lost in a lot of these entrepreneurial stories, you know, for some people, um, entrepreneurship is a choice they make. For some people, uh, entrepreneurship is a way up in the world. Um, but for many of us, it's our only choice. <laughs> you know, in my case, nobody was going to hire me. I was an 18-year-old high school dropout. I was not qualified to do shit, right? And it's so interesting what happens in life when we, for one reason or another, feel backed in a corner. And I just, I love how that story, you know, go through it. It's like, well, they're not going to be the white knight. We're six million. They're six billion. Let's fuck them up. <laughs> Like, yeah, it's like charge right down the middle. You know, let's, uh, let's see what happens. And, well, and you know, I, 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 I it's, it's seriously, it's not like I feel good about it. I mean, I had 60,000 employees, so it's, you, you can't feel good about fucking them up. But on the, on the other hand, the, what's come from it in some ways is actually pretty cool and has created huge opportunities just for a different set of people. I mean, the, the content creators are having a renaissance. Uh, the distribution companies are, are doing really well with this. We've created tons of other jobs. Um, and, but the fundamental thing is that what really made this happen was that this is what customers wanted. 
this is the way people wanted to watch their movies. And we just figured out the best way to do that. Well, and let me tell you, as a longtime customer, uh, back in the subscription DVD days, uh, I fucking love Netflix. <laughs> it's fucking fantastic. My wife loves it. The shit that's on is incredible. The continuous expansion of the stuff, whether it's other people's content or your own content. Now, like it's just you guys have figured out how to excite and delight this whole thing around binging Kemp comes from you, right? Like, why should we have to wait? Like now with shows who don't deliver the entire season in one go, you're like, well, what do you mean I got to wait till next week or whatever? This is complete <laughs> bullshit, right? And so over time, you guys just changed paradigm after paradigm and kept innovating and really setting the agenda for what a modern media company should be. You know, and it's, it's interesting because a lot of this, as with many things at Netflix, this can be writ large, it wasn't like necessarily that we invented a lot of these things. We just began systematically stripping away the guardrails that have been put in place. I mean, if you think about what used to be told to the creative genius who was creating a television show, be free, but... 22 minutes, it's got to break every four or five minutes for a commercial. You've got to end every commercial break with kind of a little cliffhanger-y thing. You've got to end every episode with a cliffhanger. Every episode's got to start with the recitation of where they were. I mean, then when you go, listen, we don't care. Do one episode that's 37 minutes. The next one that's 49. The next one could be 28. Have the story arc go over four episodes. I mean, you don't need to worry about wrapping having a pilot which draws them in build slowly and then you begin to see the amazing things that these true creative people can do when they've had all the restrictions lifted and that's what that's where innovation comes from it's so great and the other thing i have to say to you as a guy who loves comedy uh, uh going to see bill burr tonight um i think netflix and there's others too that deserve some credit but netflix by far as at least as a consumer was what i can tell um, you have transformed the comedy industry. There are more professional comics thriving. There's all these new uh, women comics who are like crushing it. You know, Amy Schumer and Eliza Schlesinger and all these, these gals are killing. Uh, and so what you guys have done to comedy alone is a gift to humanity, Mark. <laughs> so there's an interesting side story about that, in which I don't think I've ever, ever talked about this before, is that so much of when you start a company, it's, it's to do things that are kind of fun for you, okay? So you know Ted Sarandos, of course, who is the, the chief content officer for, uh, for Netflix. And in many ways, he's probably a more powerful man now than Reed Hastings is. Uh, he's the one, he's in charge of all of that original content. It was a bigger budget than any studio has ever really had. Um, Ted, from the moment before, long before Netflix, was a comedy junkie. He was the kind of guy who was haunting. I the didn't know that. Films. Yep. He like, really, you go to work, and then that night, he'd, he'd hit all the comedy stores in LA. And he loved it. He was he the person to go up after the sets and chat him up at the bar. This is this for I haven't heard this specifically recently, but I know 
that one of the reasons Netflix is so big into comedy did not come from an algorithm or did not come from some cost benefit analysis. It came from Ted going, oh my God, this is the coolest thing ever. That is so awesome. I mean, we have so much great comedy now and the comedy clubs are thriving and comedian podcasts and on and on and on. And you guys, I think, are the primary reason. I didn't know it was Ted, but God bless Ted. We did a, uh, we did a, um, we used to do these retreats. We did the one at Alisal Ranch, but then as it got a bit bigger, we did one at Sundance at the Sundance Film Festival in Park City. And the next year we did it in LA and we did a night at one of the comedy clubs and Ted called in all his favors and it was an all headliner night. As opposed to normally at a comedy store, you know, you'll have the, the seven or eight, nine, eight, and then you have the one headliner. This was all headliners. And it, it blew my mind. It was the coolest thing ever. So awesome. Mark, I know I don't have you for much longer. Anything else you want to touch on before we wrap? No, this is great. I really appreciate you taking the time. And um, this, the book really was a labor of love. And it really was about showing people, listen, don't believe what you read. Don't believe what you see. Ignore that movie, The Social Network. If you really want to see what it's like, how fun it is, and how hard it is to turn an idea into reality, this is the place to, uh, to read about it. It's a great book. I'm so glad you put it down on paper. It's a fun read. It almost reads like a novel. And uh, I'm so glad it's a true story. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too. <laughs> well, thank you, brother. It's great to see you. Uh, I hope we get to get together in person uh, at some point uh, down the road. But I uh, awesome. really appreciate the book and super appreciate you uh, having this conversation with me. Well, I'll see you out at the hook one of these afternoons. That would be fantastic. <laughs> All right. Thank cheers. you, brother. Bye-bye. There he is, legendary entrepreneur Mark Randolph. Um, And I sure hope you loved this episode as much as I loved having this conversation. And I also want to remind you, don't miss our next episode with John Rossman, author of Think Like Amazon. And just like with this uh, Netflix story, um, you know, many of us thought we knew the real story. And Mark really uh, shows us there's a lot of things we didn't know. Same thing with Amazon. The insights that John uh, uh, sort of reveals about how Amazon really um, uh, sort of thinks and acts and executes are priceless. So that's coming up next. Um, now, my friends at NetSuite, um, they want to help you plan for legendary success. And part of being legendary in business means staying on top of your numbers. Today, more than ever, you want to be on top of the seminal numbers that drive your growth. Imagine having every critical metric that you need to manage and grow your business on your smartphone, anytime, anywhere. NetSuite makes that happen with legendary dashboards that help you stay on top of sales, finance, accounting, orders, inventory, HR, and even CRM. 65% of the tech companies going public lately run NetSuite, and that's not by accident. And it's available to you, and it's surprisingly cost-effective. Visit my friends at netsuite.com slash different. And while you're there, you'll be able to get a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry, netsuite.com slash different. Uh, because you want to know, because if you don't know, you don't know your business, and with NetSuite, you're always going to know. All right, we would like to thank the incredible Mark Randolph and his legendary new book. I highly recommend uh, picking up a copy. I loved reading it. It's called That Will Never Work. 
the birth of Netflix and the amazing life of an idea. The incredible folks at OneLifeFullyLived.org. Dream, plan, and live your best life. Check out the number one, LifeFullyLived.org. My new podcast, Lockhead on Marketing. And hey, I want to say something about this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. With your support, you have made Lockhead on Marketing recently the number one business podcast on Apple Podcasts in the United States of America. Let me say that again. You help make Lockhead on Marketing the number one business podcast in the United States of America. And out of the top 200, um, Lockhead on Marketing recently hit as high as number 20. There's 750,000 podcasts on Apple, and we hit number 20 and number one in business. And there's no way that would have happened without, without you. As a matter of fact, um, we did our first listener survey um, uh, this past summer, and we found out that 80% of you found out about these podcasts from a friend. So thank you for sharing Follow Your Different, and thank you for making Lockhead on Marketing number one. My good friends at Bottleneck Online want to help you scale yourself with the power of a virtual assistant. Check out bottleneck.online today. Are you looking to design and dominate your market categories? My friends at Category Design Advisors are there to help. Check them out at CategoryDesignAdvisors.com. GrowWire.com. It's what legendary entrepreneurial people are reading today. Check it out. GrowWire.com. And if you're in Australia and you want to do legendary marketing, my friends at Rapid Media are there to help. Check out rapidmedia.com.au. That's rapidmedia.com.au. And Habitat for Humanity, dreams of a world where everybody has an awesome place to live. Check out habitat.org to make a difference today. That's Habitat for Humanity at habitat.org. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. Um, uh, this podcast is produced by the legendary Jamie J and Sarah Knox, edited by the un- <laughs> the uncomparable, the amazing Mike D, and show notes by the legendary Diane Gervasio. Warning: This podcast goes way better with libations. Remember, you can visit us at Lockhead.com with two H's. If you must send email, send email to blackhole all one word at Lockhead.com, and you can check out my um, week social media game on Instagram and Twitter at Lockhead. Uh, Don't forget Netflix and chill. Buy John's Crazy Socks. Tell two people you love about two podcasts you love. Don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Remember to listen to the Tragically Hip. Teach peace. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Richard C. Kelly, chairman of the board at PG&E. Sorry, Dick, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with me. Stay legendary. And of course, till we're together again, follow your difference.